So uh, since there are still some folks coming in, now is a good time to do sort of a soft open. Uh, and that is, um, I recognize many of your faces, many of you have been here these last couple of weeks as we've been practicing uh, this introduction to Shikantaza, this introduction to Zazen. Welcome if you're here for the first time. Who, who is here for the first time? Great, wonderful, wonderful. Nice to see you. So, um, for those of you who have been practicing these weeks as we go along, if you had anything you wanted to ask from last week, now might be a good time while we have a few open minutes, and then we can do a more formal opening in a minute. Yes? So, I have an intuition as to how you're going to answer this, but I'll ask it anyways. When we're sitting with pain, or emotional or physical, do you think that, like, what about sitting with, I, I'm curious, this is a spe maybe a specific one for me, but sometimes I'm just fantasizing about food in my meditation, like, and I'm, I'm just hungry. Your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, what are you having? No, um, what do you, what, what was your intuition? What do you think I was gonna say? I thought you were gonna say, more or less the same thing that just pay attention to it. So the, the question is, how to pay attention if you're just fantasizing? I suppose, how can we more skillfully sure. pay attention? Sure. That's a perfect setup for tonight, which is mindfulness of thinking. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. So I'll, I'll get into that very, very soon. Maybe one more as people start trickling in. Yes. Sure. And I keep finding myself in that loop where something very interesting comes up. Sure. Because I don't want to miss out and forget. Of course, FOMO, FOMO. Um, <laughs> like, there, there's, a, there's a real allure to thinking, right? There's like, the, the, idea, com the idea comes and then there's a certain gravity to, uh, to want to like, go there or I'm going to miss something. I had this, I had this, um, happen a fair amount in my own practice, and I found that um, setting an intention at the beginning such that I just said to myself, you know, for these 20 minutes, whatever really yummy, tasty thought comes up, if it's important, may it come back to me at the end. And that settled something for me, and I was able to not feel quite so much allure. So you might try that and see if it, see if it uh, has an effect for you. And then we'll get, uh, we'll get into some specifics about mindfulness with thinking uh, here just shortly. Yes? When focusing on emotions and working through that, I find it, I'm very quickly start telling my own stories. And I'm wondering how to pay attention to feelings and be with them without entering that rabbit hole. Right, right. There's such a strong connection, isn't there, between thinking and emotion. The practice as we've, been, as we've been talking about it over the weeks, it relies on, it relies on our, our, that moment where we recognize that we're, we've been swept away and that very gentle move of release and coming back. 
And it's, I imagine you're able to release and come back and then the thought happens to be persistent, uh, sort of being swept away is persistent. It doesn't matter how many times you need to do the release and come back, just to repeat it, you're strengthening that, strengthening that muscle and re reconditioning. As we're going to talk, out, talk about shortly, there's very, very often, uh, with persistent, repetitive thinking, very, very often there's an emotion underneath it. And the practice, if it's available, is to let the thinking happen in the background, come into the body, and feel the emotion through the body and give that some acknowledgement in time. Yeah. I think the room is settled enough that we can, we can carry on. I'd like to welcome all of you. Wow. Um, yeah, thank you for your questions. So uh, as I was mentioning, this is the third evening in a series on a gradual instruction to Shikantaza, gradual instruction to Zazen, the meditation of this particular school. And we have been, we've been making use of a gradual instruction to begin with something that's right in the center, to begin with our posture and our breathing, and to learn to be with the posture and the breathing in a way that's simple, it's direct, and uh, non-reactive. And then taking that practice, we expand it out to include more and more aspects of our being. That's what we've been up to. So we've, got, we've gone from breath and posture. We've included something about how to relate wisely to the body. Knowing something about relating to the breathing helps us know how to relate to the body. Then we, then we widen the circle to include wise relationship to emotion. Much easier to do that wisely with the basis in the body. And then tonight we're going to expand further and include this really important aspect of our lives, thinking. How much time do we spend doing it? How much time? And since it's the third out of three, we'll not only cover this, uh, this important topic of how, how we might exercise attention with thinking, we're also going to introduce the namesake, signpost, the, the heart practice of this school, Shikantaza. And having been prepared by all of this, Hopefully that transition is smooth. Again, I want to say, if this is your first night, uh, don't, don't worry about what's led up to this. Shikantaza, uh, Zazen instruction, is often give, given sort of standalone. So uh, people show up, never, never practiced any of these other things, and they get along just fine doing Shikantaza. So don't sweat it. And if you would like to check out the whole trajectory, you can go back to be with recordings. So I think, to my mind, I actually want to introduce some of the relationships with thinking. Uh, instead of through a talk first, I'd like us to meditate together. And I'll do a more of a guided meditation. And then we can use that experience and we'll, we'll uh, discuss. So if you can find yourself in a alert, balanced, meditative posture, as we emphasized in the beginning with an alert spine that allows the 
ribs and the shoulders and the arms to relax, to extend. can be helpful to place the fingers of the left hand on the fingers of the right hand, just below the navel, with the thumb tips just, just touching. If that hand posture suits you, it helps to balance energy and relaxation. <coughs> So from here, let's take some time to connect with the breathing. Setting yourselves upright, I invite you to take a few long, deep breaths at your own pace, maybe three, four. With each breath connecting with the body, inviting the posture to be upright and aligned. And softening. You can let your breathing return to its normal rhythm, natural rhythm. Deep or shallow, fast or slow. As we connect to the breathing body, just gently sweeping the attention one time through the body to see if there's anywhere, any holding or contraction that can easily be let go. And for the time being, to center ourselves, to settle ourselves, deliberately but kindly directing the attention to the breathing through the body. For now, as thoughts arise, you just let them go or stay in the background and foreground attention on the breathing. 
And now I'd like to invite you to begin with me this meditative exploration of thinking. You can let go of the priority of attending to the breathing. to the breathing and simply to notice when you're thinking to notice that you are thinking for this exercise you're welcome to think you have permission for your thoughts to be there you can give yourself that permission So as thoughts arise, to simply be clearly aware that thinking is happening. To be clearly aware, directly knowing that process as it happens. Without feeding it, if a thought fades away, you can just wait until the next one comes or return to your breathing until another thought arises. In order to see the process of thinking clearly, the content we can set aside. What we're thinking about, not so important for this, but other aspects of the process of thinking.
For you now, is a thought a steady object or is it slippery? Thinking in words or thinking in images? How's the tone of voice? The tempo? Is there any physical aspect to the thinking? Is your thought connected with some energy or sensation in the body? Or with an emotion you feel through the body? For the last minute or so of this sitting, I invite you to bring your attention back to the breathing, back to the center. As you hear the bell when you're ready, come right back.
so just to get a sense if um, maybe one or two people are willing to share anything they noticed uh, in this exercise of observing the process of thinking, the characteristics, the properties of thinking, rather than the content, or anything you noticed in, uh, in the meditation. Yes. Um, I feel like today in particular, I've like feeling like a bit of emotion, and um, I haven't really been feeling that like the last few weeks have been in a pretty good place. But today, I'm not feeling like 100%. And I think I found it really hard to like burn for my thoughts. They're just kind of going like crazy because yeah. of the immersion. <laughs> and normally, when I'm like peaceful and like calm, I can like really focus on those thoughts. Right. Mm. Yeah, good observation. Good observation. Thank you for sharing. Did that ring bells with people? It seemed like when the the emotion was the emotion was heightened, the 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 thinking was maybe more unwieldy or different more difficult to pay attention to. Whereas when settledness and calm are there, maybe it's a, maybe it's a little easier to observe them. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So the the associative nature of moving from one th- one thought to the next. Uh huh. How did? Yeah. Right. One, two, three steps away. Where am I? That's fabulous. Thank you. Thank you for the observation. Kind of a remarkable faculty of the mind to be able to do that. Maybe time for one more. Uh, yeah. Also, I felt like that way. Then my thoughts were connected with one another, but then and then were more like uh, words kind of thoughts. Uh huh. And thinking, like deep thinking. And then I had some imaging coming out for the sounds as like a background from the crows. Yeah. <laughs> and I had this image of keep, keep coming back while mm. I was thinking, which was kind of cool. So you had both words and images sort yeah. of mingling or moving with one another? Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I'm sort of tickled by the soundtrack as, we, <laughs> as we're going along here. So, um, sort of right in line with what you mentioned, and the progressive nature of these instructions as we've been talking about them, we're making use of this very, very simple faculty of attention. Just like everyday thing, something we use all the time. Centering ourselves on the breathing, settling, calming ourselves, and somehow that actually makes it more possible to see clearly the body, to see clearly emotions as they're coming and going, and to relate more clearly with thinking. Um, this, this sort of movement toward including everything, nothing is left out. That's like the best news about meditation. There's nothing that can happen in meditation that says, oh, this, this really shouldn't be here. Everything gets to be there. So my... Um, Disclaimer, as we get into the topic of wise relationship to thinking or mindfulness of thinking, we will not exhaust this topic. This is just a little, a little touch or a little introduction, and I encourage you to, to practice with it. Um, I think the first thing I'd like to say is that 
thoughts often get a pretty bad rap in meditation circles. Does anyone else find that? Thinking should not be happening. Something has gone wrong. I can only meditate if my mind is silent. I, I actually, I hear that from people a lot um, that are somehow acquainted with meditation. And they, they're like, oh, I, that's not for me. I can never get my mind to be quiet. That's, that's the, the indication that something has gone wrong. It's not for me. But as we've been saying, as we've been saying, everything gets to be included. Every part of your being. Every, every body sensation. Every emotion. And your thinking. Your whole humanity is part of this practice. So uh, I, I think we would do well to spend a minute or two just to sort of celebrate and respect thinking in our lives to counter this tendency to think, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have this, I shouldn't have this. Um, one thing I appreciate is that thoughts, they don't, they don't occur in a vacuum. They may be associative, right? They may be sort of disjointed or maybe not so connected with parts of ourselves, but very often our thinking points to something deeper in us. If you can point to some physicality, you can point to some emotion. Or thinking can represent something that we value. Um, there's, there's something I'm thinking about called the artful power of thoughts. Everything that Shakespeare ever wrote, every poem that Neruda ever wrote, every invention, every team meeting, these are all thoughts. Think of all the beauty that's been brought into our world through, through uh, verbal art. Um, here's a really good twister. Every Buddhist teaching communicated by way of words. Well, mostly. <laughs> the value of language within the tradition itself as finger, a finger pointing to the moon words pointing to something beyond. But we value the words. It's like we treasure the teachings that have come down to us. And of course, we, uh, as we all well know, thinking has its drawbacks. Um, the other day I was taking a walk. I think I was on Waller Street and I saw this, this beautiful medium-sized dog uh, walking its owner. <laughs> and it, uh, it got across the street and it just stopped cold. And the owner was like, come along. But no, the, the pup was in charge. They used to live with these Great Danes. And you get a Great Dane on a leash and it really gets an idea. It's like, it takes you for a ride. And how often does our thinking take us for the ride rather than us? I'm reminded of when I was, when I was young, I was learning uh, to water ski. You hold onto a rope on the back of a boat and you, guess you, you press, you press your legs as, uh, as the boat is taking off. I was a young tyke and made a, not such a wise decision. I lost my balance, I fell, and I held onto the rope as it was underwater. <laughs> but I wouldn't let go, I wouldn't let go. But I, before I knew it, I was, I was dragged under. I was okay, I was okay. But how often do we do that with our thinking? We hang, we hang on, gotta hang on, and get dragged underneath the, the water, not for too long, I hope. So the, way, the ways that, you know, figuratively, thinking, thinking can run us around. Of course, there's a connection there with um, experiences of anxiety. Or we know that rumination, there's a connection with feeding depression. 
And there's like a, there's an emotional cost. But there's this potential in mindfulness practice. There's this potential in cultivating this faculty of attention to develop a wise relationship with our thinking, or at least to grow uh, into wisdom and a wiser relationship with our thinking. I was speaking with the abbess of uh, Green Gulch yesterday, and uh, without my asking her, she said, the thing that I've gotten out of all these years of practice, the most important thing I've gotten out of all these years of practice, 40, an affectionate relationship with my own mind. There was nothing more to say. It was just, that was it. That's what all this practice was for for her. An affectionate relationship with her own mind. And the founder of this temple, the temple Suzuki Roshi, is uh, paraphrased as saying, uh, thinking is okay, but don't be disturbed by your mind. Just let it come, let it go. Let it be what it will. So there's this, uh, there's this sort of charming analogy that I will borrow. Imagine you're out on a walk and you find yourself on a hillside under a tree. You say, oh, this is comfortable. I'm going to have a seat. You sit down, river, river going by in front of you. You're just really enjoying yourself, totally content to be there. And here comes on the stream a little party boat. It's like they got the music, they got the dancing, they got the flowers and the decorations. And before you know it, you're half a mile downstream on the party boat. You didn't even know what happened. How did that happen? You make your way back to the shore, sitting there under your tree, enjoying yourself. Sitting there under, sitting there under the tree, content. And here comes a war boat. And before you know it, you're making battle plans. And you ride that war boat, you're half a mile down the river, before you notice, what am I doing? I got carried away. And you get off. Go back to sitting under the tree. And then you find yourself on a little raft, just like clinging on for dear life. Oh, I've got to hold on to this, or I will slip off. What am I doing? I got carried away again. Isn't it just like this with thinking? Before we know it, we're downstream. Don't even know how long it's been, really. Yes? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go for it. I know there's a lot of sound. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if you can push from the wood rather than the glass, I think we'll be in better shape. So one of the possibilities, possibilities I, want to, I want to introduce tonight is something we did in the meditation. And that is rather than seeing and getting caught up in, dragged around by, the content of our thinking, the story is so seductive. Before we know it, we're gone. Rather than emphasizing this, to observe thinking as its process. Observe thinking as a process. How do we notice in direct experience that a thought coagulates in the mind? What do we notice about that? What's the first thing we see? Is there, like, is there a tremble in the mind? Is there an image that pops up? Is there a comment? Did I, um, did I happen to catch sight of a bell and the word bell came into my mind and then associative thinking before I know it, I'm on pilgrimage. 
So how does that process happen? What's the step-by-step in indirect experience? One of the reasons that we cultivate this skill after developing some stability with the body and emotion and breathing is that we've been developing this, um, this ability to be here now, regardless of what comes, whatever arises, just strengthening this skill of being, uh, being able to recognize what's happening in the present moment as it's happening. Thinking gets to be included too. All parts of ourselves get to be included too. It's a tricky practice. Thinking is very slippery. And before we know it, we're downriver. So the, in the most traditional zazen instructions, there's a little phrase about thinking. Think not thinking. How does one think not thinking? Non-thinking, beyond thinking. We could spend a lot of time unpacking that. The, one, of the most, one of the most useful distinctions that I have derived out of that for our practical purposes is to distinguish deliberate thinking from involuntary thinking. There's like, the thought arises involuntarily, and then we decide to pick it up and take it for a walk, or it takes us for a walk. That's deliberate thinking. Involuntary thinking will just come. Maybe if we don't get on the boat, it just passes right by. Um, and we can observe it as process. That's something we can practice, shifting into that mode, just letting thoughts come and letting them go. To be very practical about uh, a way we can practice with thinking, with the brief time we have to talk about this, I want to describe what, what a, a progression in meditation might look like. So say we're, say we're focused on the breathing. We have, uh, we have breathing as our base, if there's thinking happening in the background, no problem. Just let it be there. Let it come in, let it go out, let it pass through. Staying with the breathing. And then, just like when we were practicing with the body or with emotions, same with thinking. If a thought so compelling comes up that it's interfering with your ability to be with the breathing, then for the time being, let go of the breathing and direct, direct attention toward thinking as a process in all its little characteristics. How's it happening? What's the tone of voice? What's the tempo? Images, what are the colors? What's the speed? Seeing it as an object of attention. And then third, uh, say, that there's a, say that there's a thought that comes up repetitively. Anybody have this experience? Repetitive thinking sometimes has a charge to it. Very, very useful. If you notice a particular theme, a particular type of thought coming up a lot, very, very useful to check out, is there an emotion underneath? Is there some energy in the body underneath? Or is there a physical holding or a, 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 some sort of like contraction underneath that's fueling this thought? And part of what that does is takes, it, it gives us some space from being pulled right into the repetitive thinking boat and puts us right here in the present moment with the body. The felt sense of the body is always here. And maybe there's something that maybe there's something in terms of emotion or physical sensation that needs acknowledgement or working out or 
some care and mindfulness. So again, if we're with the breathing, it's in the background, no problem. No problem at all. Just leave it there. Let it come, let it go. Um, If a thought becomes compelling, turn toward, examine its process, examine its characteristics, it's coming and going. And then if there's something repetitive, have a look underneath. There might be a physical aspect to the thinking. Maybe two last things I want to say, and then I want to open up for some questions for this thinking section on thinking. And the first is, it's just always comforting to me when, I, when I'm, I'm experiencing some number of thoughts, is that in terms of the Dharma, in terms of Buddhism, we have not five, but six senses. The, the five we usually think of, and we have the mind as six. And just the way that through the body, any sensation can come and go, it doesn't mean something has gone wrong. Same with the mind. The mind, as a sense door, senses mental activity. It's just like the sense of touch. Or one of my, one of my longtime mentors said, the pancreas secretes insulin, the mind secretes thoughts. Totally okay. Last thing about mindfulness of thinking for this moment is an encouragement actually um, to not get busy about thinking. It can seem like there's a lot to do or a lot to parse or a lot to observe. Simple observation of what's happening in the present moment, this, this skill we've been developing all these weeks, that's onward leading. That's totally wholesome. So if, uh, if things get jumbled around or confused, so simple. Just come back to the breathing. Come back to what's happening right here. I hope that that can lead to, to us not being disturbed by our mind and feeding development of some affectionate attitude for our own mind. So maybe now is a good time for some questions before we move into the second section. It might, uh, I actually want to invite you, if you want to stand up and stretch a minute and gather your thoughts, and then we'll, we'll sit back down and have a few minutes for questions. Yes. Can you speak to the meta nature of all of this, vis-a-vis specifically awareness as a thought? Awareness as a thought. Or different than. Awareness has different than a thought. Certainly. I'm just thinking for a moment about an illustration. I think one, one I can borrow from the tradition is, uh, thanks to the crows, a bird flying through an empty sky. The mind is so much more vast than a thought. In, just in the same way that our, in, our experience is so much more vast than thinking really interesting aspect of the mind is we have all these different faculties that are not limited to discursive thought or even thinking with images. We have all these different functions of the mind. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind 
think the, the only other step I want to take with it is developing a familiarity with, with the mind beyond a thought. It's like it, it sensitizes us or introduces us to a level of well-being that's, that's very difficult to match in thinking. Did you want to uh, reframe the question? or? No. Yeah? Great. Thank you. Any questions about the... Yeah. Um, I feel like when I'm like observing my thoughts, it like, takes more mental energy, and in that way, it's like I'm becoming more tense. Oh, sure. Do you like have you experienced that? For sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. Good catch. Uh, it's... it's um, it's entirely beneficial that you're noticing that uh, the way that something about the way the effort is being made is creating more tension in the body. That being so, it would make sense, to my mind, you, my instincts, you could explore it, and really these are, these are explorations, you could explore it in a couple of different ways. One is the question of what sort of way can I apply, the, apply my energy to this, even the same exercise, in a way that doesn't generate tension, and have that be the sort of basis of inquiry, even emphasized above what's the process of thinking. Because there's, there's, a, there's a lot to be learned about uh, the body maintaining its upright and openness while we relate to all sorts of experience, and having that as a frame. Um, the other, if there's some curiosity there and it feels wholesome, you could you could carry right on and see how long the tension lasts while you do the exercise and then see if it passes away on its own. There's a lot of possibility there. I don't hear a problem. Yes? So when you meditate, how do you deal with distracting noises like the crowds or, I don't know, a car coming by? Because you're trying to like think about something and then they're like, plan, plan, plan all the time and different noises. And yeah. How would you? Sure, sure. The, for, for the purposes of what we're up to right now, for this sort of arc of exercises, we're trying, to, we're trying to include more and more in our experience. I can actually get to a place where we're including sound. Sound can register just in the same way as sensation. It comes. It passes through and it goes. And we maintain our simple relationship to it. Suzuki Roshi has this really sweet story about, um, I think they're blue jays making a bunch of noise while he's giving a Dharma talk. It's like great timing. Um, and he says this beautiful thing like, oh, this is, these aren't his words, but it, it's like, it's about the, the attitude of ours is what makes it noise rather than sound. And how does, it, does anyone know the quote? It's like, the, letting the blue jay come right into your heart. Does anyone remember that? I'll have to, I'll have to look it back up. But the, what, it, what it does for me is like, what's being observed there is like a movement of the mind. Say you're, you're directing attention to the breathing, a sound comes by, and then your attention is over here, and it, it sounds like it's possible that there's like a little bit of and then coming back. Maybe looking right there, 
that instead of the instead of that little resistance or aversion, um, see if it's possible to re- release and relax, and come back, come back. Okay, so don't think about making it unpleasant. Just acknowledge and be with the distortion or whatever noise it is. If if that's possible, if that's possible, and if what's possible is seeing that a sound comes by and has moved your attention and you can see that an aversion has arisen, you're still feeding mindfulness. You've seen it happen. And then the practice of observing and letting it go in a certain sense is purifying. Yeah. Yes? Um, so for most of my life, I'd say I've been very attached to my thoughts. Um, sort of more recently, I've come to see that the many types of thoughts that you just you know, alluded to, involuntary thoughts, deliberate thoughts, all these different things. Um, but something I struggle with coming to that realization or saying that a thought can mean absolutely nothing or, or can you know, be a very profound truth is, is kind of almost how to distinguish that. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say about, um, especially when thoughts have an emotional attachment to them, at least for me, I almost see them as like a truth. It's like I'm thinking it, I'm feeling it, it has to mean something. But again, yeah. I've come more recently to realize that that's not always the case. But again, I really struggle at times with, yeah, almost how to distinguish with all the many thoughts that we have, almost what's false, what's true. That's Maybe that's too much of a dichotomy, but you know, that sort of question. Sure. Uh, could I ask you a question in return? Yes. As you're, as you're becoming familiar with this, something has shifted. You're becoming familiar with um, your identification with thinking versus not. And then I hear, I hear in your question already that like some discernment working about what's, um, what's a thought I can trust right. and what's a thought I you know, want to let go of. Yeah. That's a rich place to be, a rich place to be. Half of my heart says to um, leave you to the inquiry and see how it goes. And uh, I trust that. I trust a lot of it. I trust that, actually. And maybe, maybe just one thing to add as you, as you go about being with that question. There's this um, very, very old teaching of regarding phenomena as tentative. It's like nothing actually in experience is ultimate. And what, is it, what does it do to hold our thinking in that light? Like insight can come with, with a compelling feeling of its own truth. Totally can. And can change our lives. And is that the end of the story? Is it a provisional insight for now? Just a bunch of questions. I, I'm delighted by what's unfolding there. I think maybe time for one more and then we'll get into something really fun. I saw two hands at the same time. I'm not sure what to do. <laughs> yeah? Uh, yeah. Please. Sure, thanks. Uh-huh. Um, earlier you talked about kind of letting some of the thoughts stay in the background, but then engaging more with the compelling thoughts. Uh-huh. One makes a thought more compelling than others. Oh, sure. Th- thank, you for, thank you for asking. That's some, some language I kind of took for granted. Um, for, the, for the purposes of that, that exercise, it's, um, it's, when, it's when you see that a thought is generating enough like pull on your attention 
that the natural move actually is not to struggle to stay with the breathing. It's to, it's to let the attention be compelled, be moved over to this other object. And then just wholeheartedly giving your attention to that. So the, the movement of compulsion, it's a little gray. Um, and, and discerning in, in your own experience, like what's a sufficient pull for me to move my attention? That's a, that's a place you can study stress, like how stress is generated. Yeah, yeah. So that we have time to talk about this, Okay. For those that have been following along, you may notice a genre shift is about to happen. In part because talking about shikantaza is difficult. We've been talking about aspects of experience that are, that are quite clear and relating to them with some very specific instructions for the purposes of including everything in our experience. The practice of shikantaza, I will finish that sentence in several ways over the, course of, <laughs> over the course of these few minutes. First thing I'll say, practice of shikantaza is one of comprehensive attention. Comprehensive attention to the present moment. Everything that arises and what characterizes it differently than what we've been doing before First thing is that the, any energy to direct attention toward one particular object, say toward the breathing, or toward the, toward the body, toward emotion, any energy to direct toward a, one particular object, for this time, we let it go. And the attention moves as it's going to move. Doesn't mean something has gone wrong. But it's kind of like untethering one's boat. You've been, t- you've been tethered and cultivating sort of wholesome, wholesome faculties. And now with that basis, it's time to draw out the anchor and let the boat float. Attention, moving from one thing to the next. And we accompany it. So this practice of choiceless attention in, in our school is called just sitting, shikantaza, just sitting, wholeheartedly sitting. Suzuki Roshi gave a very provocative, or like interesting to me lecture the night before a session, before a retreat started in this room in 1970, where he wanted to give the background of shikantaza and how to practice. And Maybe to get everyone's attention, but also maybe because he was speaking literally, he, he said, just to sit is not enough. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. This is the, this is the school of just sitting. What are we talking about here? I'm, so Suzuki Roshi, 50 years later, had my attention. So what he goes on to do is describe some of the background attitudes It's sort of like how one sets themselves up. Like what sort of mental posture does one establish and then totally release into shikantaza, totally let go, pull up the anchor, let the boat drift, 
and he sets up a couple of these. And I'm actually, I think I have time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use a pretty classic analogy to talk about it. So imagine, imagine uh, say you have taken a boat out to the beach here and you row, you row your way. My geography for this analogy is not gonna be so strong. You, imagine you have made yourself far enough that you cannot see land in any direction. All you see is water. Some of you may recognize this, this is the Genjo Koan. All you see in all the four directions is water. All you can see is ocean. But can you see the entire ocean? You can only see this circle of water. What we know is partial. And one of these, Suzuki Roshi sets up two attitudes to, to, to bring into ourselves as we're setting up into Shikantaza. And the first is very strongly related to this notion that what we see, what we see is partial at any given time. Like I can't see the, I can see one side of my hand, I can't see the other. I can see the circle of water, but I can't quite see what's beyond it. And there's a, a sort of tentativeness to that. That our, our experience is being informed by what's around it. Like the, the edge of the water, imagine that like very edge of what you can see is being influenced by the meter of water beyond it. There's a flow happening there, but we can't witness it. But what we know is that that circle of water is exactly the ocean. It's part and parcel of the ocean. And then we apply that to our own experience. The circle of water in the ocean can look at it as the horizon of our own senses or the horizon of any one given sense. It's like if you, cl if you closed your eyes and opened your ears, you can try this. Close your eyes and open your ears and sort of hear out to the edges as far as you can hear and feel how there at the edges of what you hear is flickering, it's changing, it's flowing, it's shifting. It's not solid, it's not stable. So what we experience is always partial and it's immersed in what Suzuki Roshi calls this one whole being, this one whole ocean. So I bring that up sort of to like invite the attitude in which we open up in Zazen. That's one. The second attitude he sets up and says is very important for the practice of Zazen is that we don't take anything in experience to be ourself. If we're out there, if we're out there in that circle of water, we don't, we don't pick up a bucket of water and say, ha, I got it. This is me, totally mine. But we're immersed in this one big being, this interbeing. It's not exactly one, it's not exactly many. We don't exactly know, we don't exactly know what it is, but we're part and parcel of it. And it's expressing itself through us. But there's not one single thing we can point to and say, 
this is this this sound that's me that's mine i'm going to keep that and appropriate it however the habit of the mind is to do that all the time appropriate we appropriate sound we appropriate sights and say this is me that's not me we appropriate sensation and interpret it oh what does this sensation mean about me these sensations are mine these are not mine these shouldn't be here and we define ourselves we define a self we do this sort of appropriating selfing activity and suzuki roshi's teaching here points beyond that points to the horizon beyond that and says for for shikantaza itself we give that selfing activity a break we pause on it. it can be really useful in the rest of our lives i'm sure you can think of some scenarios where you really need to do some selfing or it seems so um, but as we were talking about the sort of the meta nature beyond thinking the meta experience beyond selfing that's something much more reliable and something that's so like so beautiful how it how it flows in and out and through and expresses expresses itself yeah that's uh, it's pretty majestic so he says that sitting without the slightest idea of self one of his abbreviations for shikantaza again we respect everything we don't say this shouldn't be here we just refrain from appropriating it refrain from making it mine there's something rich and if you reflect on this sort of um difficult for the mind to grab hold of in that this attitude that is full to the brim of just changing flowing experience flowing into itself that's completely empty of a self fullness and emptiness he says sitting without the slightest idea idea of a self one of the ways i abbreviate shikantaza is the embodied practice of not self and in the terms of in terms of practice suzuki roshi encourages us we can set up these attitudes and sort of be immersed in them but our work when we're on the cushion is to be fully with the body breathing be fully here embodied awareness and then just release into the ocean it's pretty radical isn't it pretty radical embodied emptiness I think there's a reason that well maybe a couple of reasons that uh the classic instructions that the founder in Japan Dogen gave say very little about what's going on with the mind. Very little is said directly about what's done with the mind. Plenty is said indirectly. He sets up like he takes maybe 40% of the thing talking about how to set ourselves up in posture. And then gives that tiny instruction think not thinking. how do we think not thinking beyond thinking and i think i think 
think one of the reasons that posture and body are so emphasized is that his words are pointing beyond into, through some, into something we sense, into something that moves through us, that the thinking mind actually can't grasp. And that's Shikantaza. So I would suggest sort of a final suggestion and then we'll have some minutes. I'll suggest if you're following this sort of trajectory of practices we've been talking about, gradually including more and more, one way that you can play in the field of Shikantaza is to set set yourself up with that first basic practice of the breathing, embodied breathing, maybe 10 minutes letting yourself settle, and then opening up to whatever is there. You can even set a second timer, five minutes, 10 minutes, to just allow attention to move as it will, and then come back. In this one moment, not having reflected on it, I'm inspired to say, you could even do this exercise in thirds. You can like be with your anchor, be with the breathing, and then the next third, open wide and then come settle back and just see how that does and play, play with this play with pulling up the anchor and releasing and what my hope is that through, through developing a familiarity with all these different aspects of our experience you can let the attention move without being disturbed by what arises it's like cultivating a balance and a friendliness with each aspect of ourselves so that then we can move freely. There's not one of these meditations that's better than the rest. I want to put that out there too. I think it's a good time for maybe questions. Maybe questions. Let's see what's, uh, let's see what's coming up. Yes. Um, so I like the analogy that you mentioned about like the urchins and how there's more beyond the there's more beyond just the horizon that you can see. Yeah. And it kind of got me wondering how I guess with thought and then also with life in general, like is it if, you, if, if I'm understanding correctly, is it that you're not becoming fixated? only on what you can see and you're also not becoming fixated on what's out there but you're just accepting that both exists and then you're there yeah um, I'm, I'm glad you pointed to this and you said something I didn't say that's really important you're not fixated on anything that's the, that's the practice of Shikantaza it's a comprehensive not fixating on stuff the, um, the attitudes the ideas that we introduce of like this one whole being and in some ways not self as an idea, in some ways it's not. But setting these up, they're sort of in the background. They're not like the things that you're, you're picking up to think about during meditation. And not even actually making an effort to feel what's beyond your circle of water, but just wholly being immersed in this circle of water here and now, expressing itself through you. And the circle of water does its own work. One of the things that one of the, the, the standouts passed from Suzuki Roshi to Blanche, the first abbess here, was um, you don't sit zazen. Zazen sits zazen. 
And that's the ocean is sitting zazen. And we're taking part in it. Yes, Nick? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure my question is. Um, it's like you're like talking about the self. I, I get a little uh, confused with like, um, you know, I feel like I'm trying to understand everything we're talking about yeah. with my mind. We're also then like creating that separation from the mind too. Um, in this, whatever we're practicing, if it's like awareness or consciousness considered, you know, as separate from the mind? Is it considered separate from the mind? Could you, could you take that one more step and... Mm, uh, I don't know, is, does, or I guess that's, like, this consciousness or awareness come from your mind or not in this what we're doing yeah yeah it's a fair question where does consciousness come from I don't know yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't uh, expect you to have an answer to that. I guess I didn't know if like this you know Buddhism if it had a what it believes to be the answer to that question sure yeah um, where do I want to go just now? As uh, one of my semi-Buddhist scholar friends said, uh, in the 2,500 years, a lot has gone down. <laughs> <laughs> he was right. He was right. There, there, have been, there have been very different ideas about the nature of consciousness over, uh, over that time. And I, I am, at this moment, I'm of the mind that we pick up the ideas, we pick up the ideas that encourage us to practice, and we pick up the ideas that free us. And the rest, not right now. So if it's like life-giving and freeing, to hold the perspective of a consciousness has such and such, is such and such a way from such and such a way, that's really what, what I'm interested in, is how does it free us? Um, I can see a little of uh, uh, some paradox of the question because we're talking about um, the sort of life-giving, nourishing aspects of awareness, but also saying, don't make a self out of that. Like, that's not, that's not who you are. Um, the connection that's there for me is that to appropriate anything shuts us down in some measure, even something as subtle as awareness. But it's almost like, it's almost like we're going from the other direction. It's like the practice, the practice both is refraining from appropriating, it's also like discovering where and how we're already appropriating and relaxing the grip. And that's subtle. It's very, very subtle. Um, it can be quite. It can be quite gross. And then, as we get into like, core notions of self and relationships to the mind, very, very subtle. It's it's worth spending a, a good deal of time on. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah, thank you.
Yes. Um, I don't know if this is really a question, but I find myself really moved by what you just said. Um, you know, so much we disallow ourselves in terms of like feelings and thoughts and pain we experience from judgment and shame and fear. And so you just say, or putting out this extreme egalitarianism of everything we experience is really liberating. So mm. I really that. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing. Well, I saw three at the same time. Uh, I don't. I haven't heard from you yet. I think. Um, my question is: so when we were talking before about meditation, I kind of, or I feel like when I'm sitting in yoga, it's like I'm trying to experience reality, like in a in a true way, I guess. And something you said before is that this practice of quieting the commentary in your mind like per- naturally promotes well-being. Yeah. And I was kind of wondering if you could like comment on why does experiencing reality without this commentary promote well-being? Like why is it that the natural inclination of the mind is something that harms us? Oh, great. Great. Really good question. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. I'm sort of feeling into that one. Yeah. And one of these things I, I really hope to emphasize over the, over the weeks is that everything belongs. Everything belongs. This inclination to think, as I, as I hope we communicated some today, it serves us well. It serves us really well. And sometimes it runs away with us. You know, it has its drawbacks. Um, and then one of, the, one of the distinctions I really emphasized a lot was to be able to parse commentary from the rest of experience and sort of be with this and in some ways that's an, that's an exercise it's like a it's an exercise to, to strengthen or, or broaden what we're available for and it's a, it's a matter of experience. Hmm. It's, a, it's, almost, it's like a physical thing. Do you, do you ever feel how the thinking like charges the body with energy or, yeah. Taking some time to let that cool down. Maybe even how you, w- you might wake up from sleep and feel refreshed. And then think, um, not you, but one. Wake up from sleep feeling refreshed not having had the charge of thinking for however long. It's not wrong that thinking is happening, but uh, there is a way that it can sort of like charge and almost like contract us. And broadening the awareness and being with something that's beyond thinking, in my experience, allows the nervous system to cool and the body to settle. And then there's this really great thing about wisdom that uh, as we, broaden, as we broaden the view and can take in, take in more, and what I mean is like take in the broader, broader view of experience, our thinking starts to become more connected to what's here and now and more in line with reality. Yeah. I don't feel like I totally like hit your question on the head. I, I guess you 
you rephrase sort of the fact that thoughts do create this negative physical reaction, much in the way that like, physical exercise might tire your body, like mental exercise tires your body yeah. as well, I guess, but sort of just, I guess the, the core of my question was, was why is that, why is that thought like exhausting? That's a good question. I don't know if I know a, a great answer for the why. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I do. I can have some, have some theory about some of the things I've observed when the mind is, is pretty still, when thinking is happening. It's almost like little tiny contractions are happening all over the body in line with the thinking, especially if I'm visualizing something. Um, you ever see, you ever see um, puppies run in their sleep? <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of get the sense that what's being thought is like working itself through the body in some in some way and actually tires us out. Just a just a theory. I don't know. I don't know the why. Sure, sure. Maybe time for one more, and then we should transition. Yes. I wanted to pick up where you said about the meditations all being sort of not equal, but not one time or the other. Yeah. Um, you know, there's like some traditions that view concentration practices sort of prerequisite or as an initial essential stage on the path. Um, and I was curious as to what this tradition thought about that. Um, and just the context for me is that I find myself it's very, very difficult for me to do the attention practice, the concentration practice. And I enjoy the awareness practice, but I hear that it's like the fact that I don't like the concentration practice is like a reason I should do it. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you said you you have that opinion, or you've heard it, or the second part, or uh, the the very end. You oh, have. yeah. I, no, I, that's like how I sometimes do it. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I could see that. I can see that. Not knowing your disposition, it's hard for me to agree or disagree with that last point, but um, the kernel of the question as I, as I hear it is, you know, some, some traditions emphasize uh, progression, concentration before opening to mindfulness, and others, others simply don't. Yeah. Um, one, of the th- one of the things that I... I has been like a take home from practicing in a couple traditions pretty deeply is that each each sort of operates with its own logic and its own sphere so comparing the merits of one against the other is actually it's kind of like an interreligious dialogue and uh, taking taking terms from one and putting them in the other it's a it's a little sketchy it's a little sketchy um, and very appealing very appealing. I have a lot of fun with it. Um, in terms of in terms of this this teaching on Shikantaza, um, Suzuki Roshi at the end of his life, uh, you you may know he very nearly drowned, and then after that, he came back and said to everyone, uh, "We're going to stop doing proper Shikantaza." And we're all going to follow the breathing. We're all going to count breath, which uh, he regarded as a preparatory practice 
Like we need to strengthen, we need to strengthen the foundation. And then it was after all that that he gave these teachings on Shikantaza. So there came a time where he opened it back up and was like, okay, we're going to do Shikantaza now. Um, when we're finding our way, finding our way in our own practice, I think it's actually really helpful. One, is to like trust your wisdom. If your instincts really say, you know, I don't like concentration practice, but I should, uh, and you and you have faith in that, then it may be it may be worth trying it out, like giving it giving it its fair trial. But if if you're saying to yourself, I don't like concentra- concentration practice, I should, but uh, really no, then maybe that's the wise thing to do. What can be helpful? to sort of pull you out of the wonder is to talk to someone you trust who knows meditation territory and can get to know your practice or already knows your practice and uh, can, can help you, help direct you. I think, uh, I think in, terms of, in terms of this practice, it can be really helpful to move back and forth between emphasizing concentration and openness. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I don't know if you can believe it, but I can, that we have done these three weeks together, this sort of gradual instruction in Zazen and Shikantaza. Uh, I've been delighted by the whole thing and delighted to be back with you in the Buddha Hall. Some of the core takeaways, things you've heard me say a lot by now, is that um, we're including everything. Everything gets to be included. Even that, even that thing we're judging or we think shouldn't be included, that gets to be included too. Everything gets to be food for the practice. We started with the basics of posture, breathing, opened up to emotions, body, the very difficult and slippery practice with thinking, and then finally shikantaza, which is sitting. Um, some of us may be just starting a meditation practice. That is a beautiful time in one's life, I think. I mean, congratulations, I think that's great. You may be starting just now. You've been alive your whole life. You're the, you, you know your experience better than anyone. And you're the one who's going to walk the path. So, first step, second step third step. Just continue. Just continue. It's the practice of a lifetime. Ongoing encouragements, very, very helpful in terms of growing in this this kind of practice to do it regularly. If you have the time to do it every day, really encourage you, encourage you to carve out some time, carve out a space in your in your place and sit. Can be really helpful to meet with others, like we're doing now, or after hours. We might, might have someone talk about after hours later. Um, to have other friends on the path. It's remarkably helpful. Remarkably helpful. Um, encouraging to meet, talk about what's coming up in your practice, hear what's going on in theirs, a Dharma friendship. And of course, can be really helpful uh, to have the encouragement and direction of uh, a mentor or a teacher. So this is one of my favorite parts, and then we'll do some announcements. 
Buddhist tradition as we know it started 25, 2600 years ago. And the Buddha, the Buddha himself survived on the generosity of others. The Buddha's teaching happened because others gave. He depended, for, depended on the laity. That's how he ate, that's how he got cloth for his robes, that's how he got medicine and how he slept. And the tradition has survived just generation after generation because it's been supported. And I find, I find that a, a practice like this, a practice that we're doing, it grows in a really healthy way if it's freely given, like we're doing here, and uh, if it's in an open field of a sort of gift economy supported, supported by gifts. So if you feel like you've been benefited in some kind of way by this, you're welcome, or you feel inspired, you're welcome to make a donation. There's a Venmo thing. Um, you maybe have heard that before. The thing I want to talk about that you might not always hear is that uh, there's, there's a really wholesome joy in the moment of giving, or in the moment of intending to give, in the moment that you give, and then when you think about it later, you're like, oh, that was nice. Don't miss the joy. <laughs> Don't miss it. Don't miss it. So wholesome. <laughs> So, yeah, it's a great benefit to the Sangha. It's a great benefit to ourselves because giving is like the exact opposite of clinging. We're working the other, other way. So thank you so much for your practice. Thank you for your support. I think announcements, and forgive us, I think we're going to run maybe two or three minutes late. It's 844.